Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And uh, this morning we are going to complete a four-week series on the book of Ecclesiastes. And I recognize that uh, many of you uh, were gone because of the two snowstorms the last two weeks. So you may want to pick up the tapes and pick up the gaps here. But I want to conclude uh, this book of Ecclesiastes and, of course, relate it to Christmas as we move into that. And Ecclesiastes is the one philosophy book of the Bible. It was written because it, God knows that in us are the, all these questions. What's the meaning of life? What's my purpose in life? Where am I going? Does my life really count? And uh, it's written for people searching for God, struggling with God. Tremendous book, profound book. And it concludes in two verses, which I want to read this morning. And actually, I want to begin reading at the end of verse 12, and then verse 13 and 14 of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. It says, of, many, of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Verse 13, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter, the conclusion of the book. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Let's pray together. And Lord, as this book of wisdom is meant to shake us up, to force us to wrestle and reflect on our lives and how we're living it, and to drive us to you, I pray this morning, Lord, that you would speak to every person here. And that this word, to fear you, God, and to keep your commandments for every hidden thing will be brought to judgment, would come alive to us practically and be a living word as we go into, Lord, these next couple of weeks, that we would honor and lift up your name. So we offer you our time around your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the new study was done recently out of, actually, University of uh, California, Berkeley, about the amount of new information that is available to us. And they say that every year, 30% new information is created through books and internet and various other resources. That means that in three and a half years, basically, the amount of knowledge available doubles. So if you think you know a lot, three and a half years from now, you know so much less. So if, for example, in the Library of Congress down in Washington, there's 115 million books and pamphlets. The British Library in London's got 150 million items, books, pamphlets to read, and they add three million a year. So what that means is if you're a reader and a learner, if you read 500 books a day, which I'm sure there's only a few of us in this room, that means you read 182,500 books a year. I mean, a year, that, that's a lot. Now, if you pay $20, book, $20 a book, that means you're spending $2.85 million on books every year. Barnes & Noble likes you. But do you realize you're falling behind every day of knowing what's going on out there? And that's why this psychologist, you know, has actually, has been quite popular now, has actually uh, penned a new chronic syndrome in our society. It's called information fatigue syndrome. It's when people are just mentally tired because of all the information coming their way. And it's characterized by people just sitting there kind of like, like numb, staring into space because so much is con coming at us and we can't absorb it. So some of you are probably in information fatigue right now as we speak that you can't take in anymore. 
But Ecclesiastes says this in verse 12 of chapter 12. It says, of the making of many books, there is no end. And much study wearies the body. Now, don't you go to school. I'm thinking all these high school students are going to teach. Yeah, my pastor said much study wearies the body, you know. Why bother learning? We can't know it all anyway. And information is exploding all around us. But Ecclesiastes is really talking about what life is like under the sun. That's this phrase he uses. That's a life apart from the revelation of God. That if you live life under the sun without thinking of heaven, okay, it is very exhausting. And he says basically people invest their lives in three major areas. You remember from a few weeks ago. Some people, like Solomon did, invested their lives in, in accumulating wisdom. And uh, Solomon was so wise for being the wisest king of the ancient Near East. And people came to him from all over the world to get his wisdom. But he realized at the end of his life, as you remember, he, took a, he went downhill at the end of his life. He realized the limited value of earthly wisdom. And it speaks to our culture, which is a frenzy, in New York at least, of getting more education, the best education, going to school after school. And uh, what Ecclesiastes says, you can go to college, get 10 PhDs to try to get ahead, but you'll never find true power and meaning and control in your life through earthly wisdom. You'll always end up frustrated because as much as you think people esteem you and honor you, it's never enough. You'll end up empty. It will always go ahead. So it's good to learn, but understand the limits of earthly wisdom. Then what, what Solomon did was he went after pleasure. And Ecclesiastes talks about going after pleasure, enjoying the pleasures of life. But uh, we think, oh, goodness, if I can only have this, then I'll really be happy. And if you remember Solomon, he had, all, he had enough wealth and money to get all the pleasure he wanted. He says, you know what? I had it all, and you know, it left me empty. So don't run after pleasure because that too without God is futile, it's meaningless. I've had it all, it doesn't deliver. And it fails to satisfy. So don't spend your life in trying to get more pleasure. And then he also says in the book, don't go after your career, work, achievement, and trying to find ultimate meaning and satisfaction in that. Because you will find out that even when you reach your goals, you still feel frustrated. You still don't, it doesn't fully satisfy you. Because work is full of thorns and thistles, Genesis chapter 3. And uh, all work is marked by disappointment. Nobody has a fully, totally satisfying job for their whole lives. It's part of built-in-to-earth frustration with our work. The ground is hard. Not that we don't work hard, not that we don't have goals, but understand you'll even be, feel empty when you reach your goals and you get at it. So the, the more you build your life on success, money, and achievement, the more empty you'll feel with time as you grow older. In fact, even if you're not into money, and you want to get to a certain place in your career so people will say, oh, look at him, he really made it, isn't he something? He says, you're going to feel even worse when you get it because you're going to die someday. And in 100 years, nobody's going to know your name anyway, and there's nothing you can do about it. So don't invest your life, whether it's in pleasure, whether it's in earthly wisdom, or whether it's in work. He says, everything is meaningless. That's the theme of the book. Everything is, the Greek word, or the Hebrew word is uh, hebel, which means basically it's like smoke. Remember our smoke machine? It's, it, you, you, you can't... You, Everything you try to grasp onto, it slips through your fingers. And so don't invest your life in that because it's a chasing after the wind. In fact, if I could summarize the, um, the book of Ecclesiastes, this comes from a, a Jesuit named Richard Rohr. And uh, it, these five truths really summarize the book of Ecclesiastes prior to verse 13 and 14. And these are five truths to humbly accept in order to move into adulthood and maturity. And so what he's trying to do, whether you're a teenager here or, or someone in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, maturing is getting a hold of these truths, that this is the way life is. And it's meant to break you and drive you to God. But the book of Ecclesiastes is meant to really force you to think and to wrestle about life so you don't invest your life in that which is going to, it's all smoke and it's going to pass away. So first thing Ecclesiastes says is life is really 
hard. Have you found that out yet? Grow older and you'll find out even more. Life's just hard. Whether it's relationships are hard, thorns and thistles, work is hard. Life's hard. Secondly, you are going to die. That was last week. Some of you are glad you missed last week. Last week was a true Christmas sermon, death, the denial of death. And there, you cannot control and manipulate life. You will return to dust on this earth. And the generations will come and go without you. But you will be dust just like the other 85 billion people who have lived before you. Everyone except for Jesus has died. Number three, you are not the center of the universe. I know you think you are. But life is much bigger than you. And again, it shall go on without you. Number four, you are not in control. That was two weeks ago in the message on the season, the time and the seasons of life. Ecclesiastes 3. For everything, there's a time to be born, a time to die. And you cannot control and manipulate life. How many of you have tried to control and manipulate life? All of us have, and we all want to. And every time you do, it slips through your fingers. Because you can't. There's something larger and bigger than you, a mystery. God, who is sovereignly orchestrating history. And you are not in control of this world as much as you would like to be. And then finally, your life is not about you. In other words, you are a fragment of something and someone larger than you, God. God is working out a plan and a history. And uh, your role and my role is to listen to God. There's a very interesting text in Ecclesiastes where it says, listen to God. Don't just come and speak rationally and make vows, but quietly listen. It's worth another whole sermon to his revelation. It's kind of the theme of today. But your life is not about you. You're called to be humble, broken by life, and fearing the Lord and doing what he says. Taking God seriously, listening to his revelation, and following it. But understand, life's hard. You're going to die. You're not the center of the universe. You're not in control. And your life is not about you. It is about God. And he's got something for you where he wants to take you. So... If you look at this without God, let me tell you something, you will be depressed. And folks without God, like Albert Camus, and, and actually I started reading some novels of these existentialists, who, many who committed suicide. As they reflected on the hard truth of life, it will make you cynical and depressed and despairing. But the point of all this in Ecclesiastes is the one book that really drives this home. It ends by saying, now as you look at this, verse 13, now all has been heard. But this is the conclusion of the matter. This is the path of wisdom. And he speaks in verse 12 to be warned, my son. Now, he's very pastoral. My son, my daughter, my children. Come on over here. He puts his arm around us. Let me tell you about life. Now, if you're young here, I tell you, we're going to save you a lot of pain. You should send me a check when this is over. Because if you will hear this message, I promise you, this will save you so much pain that you will bring on yourself by violating God's ways. Because these five things are true. And what I'm saying to you is true from the living God, whether you believe it or not. And what you sow, you shall reap. You, re you sow to the flesh, you sow disobedience, you will reap that in your life. You sow obedience to God and what he says, and you fear the Lord, you take him seriously, and you will reap life. God promises it. And so here's what he says. Here's the meaning. Here's the purpose of life. And all the schools and all the degrees cannot give you this. This can come only from God. So let's begin here in uh, verse 12. Verse 13, I'm sorry. The wise life. Number one, takes God seriously. Now let me ask you, do you take God seriously? What does that even mean to take God seriously? He begins in verse 13 by saying to fear God. Fear God. What does it mean to fear God? 
And I can go into a whole long explanation of what it looks like to fear God. You know, it, it, holy awe of God, his power, you know, gratitude for his kindness and mercy, confidence in his wisdom, I'll trust you, God, I'll obey you, delight in communing with him. And I can even add more to the list. It's an interesting study to look up every verse on the fear of the Lord in a concordance. It's a great, great study. But I'd like to approach it really in, in, a, in, the, uh, in the opposite way, in the negative way, by saying, what is it not to fear the Lord? And, uh, uh, and what does it look like? So imagine being in the presence. Am I on? Am I still on? I'm off. I'm on. All right. Think about what it means to be in the presence of someone who is great. Now, for me, Michael Jordan is great. All right. Great basketball player. Or think of who you would consider great. I don't know if it's a celebrity. Hope not. All right. You know, Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, Nelson Mandela, whoever it might be for you who is so, a great person. And if you're in their presence, uh, how you would be, you'd have a sense of awe and, and, and respect and, and honor. But, but obviously an earthly person that, we, that we're awestruck by is, is minimal next to the fear of the Lord is really, it's being awestruck by being in the presence of Almighty God, not just for a moment, but for all of my life. It's the fear of the Lord. And because I'm in God's presence, it impacts the way I live every day. So when it says the first mark of a wise life is I live my whole life, not just this week or three weeks, but my whole life is marked by a healthy, not a fear, but a, a fear like, oh, cringing, but a fear of the Lord, an, an awesome, holy sense of God's here, of his power, of his kindness, of his mercy, of his wisdom, of his might, and I live that way. So it's very different than I think how most of us live our lives with God. Because most of us look at him as, God, I have an agenda of how I'm going to live my life. Now help me. Kind of like God is my, I have to call it, he's my secretary. He's my administrative assistant. As I make plans and think through what I want to do, as I need something done, I call on God. Now some of us go really far out and we treat God as if he's our pet. We enjoy him at times and we don't want him. We, we kind of discard him and put him away in a, in a closet or a cage and we kind of pull them out as needed. That is not the fear of the Lord. But it's how most of American Christians live their lives. You know, it's kind of like, God, answer my prayer right now. Don't call me, God, I'll call you. It's kind of like, oh yeah, uh, God, I need some help with a test this week or a job interview. Could you please help me? Oh God, these commands you've given, thank you. I will take them into consideration as I live out my life. And I'll let you know which ones I will take of your 10 suggestions, and which ones I will discard because they really don't, I don't like them very much. And so it's kind of like, you know, we're, we're running the show here and not God. Like prayer, God says, you know, spend time with me. I want, to, want you to delight in me and enjoy me and all that. I say, yes, God, I'll meet you on Tuesday night. I have an appointment. I'll, I'll squeeze you in for about 10 or 15 minutes, but I've really got a lot going on. And uh, it's kind of like God hangs around and we, we ring the bell when we need him. That is the opposite of the fear of the Lord. It's what the Bible calls pride. You know, many people say, I don't, I don't want to live in, in taking God that serious, Pete. You know what? If I do, God's going to ask me to do things I don't want to do. You better believe it. You're right, he's going to ask you to do things you don't want to do because he's God. And he understands how life is meant to be lived. And if you're living life and you only do what you want to do, you can rest assured you're not taking God seriously. You're taking yourself very seriously and the fact that you're going to die and you're limited and life is hard, that is not a wise thing to do, says Ecclesiastes. And, um, you know, fair-feathered 
fair-weathered Christian. You know, I, kinda, I come to worship today. He says, yes, I hope I feel good at worship today. If I don't, yeah, I won't even come back. Because worship really is about me. It's kind of like half of God, half of Baal worship. You know, I'm kind of like, I, 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 this Christian life is about me. It's about my experience and my joy and my good feelings. It's really not centered on God. That is the opposite of the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is a very foreign concept for us in America. Being fiercely independent. Those of you who have immigrated here, you've caught our spirit. And I'm telling you, it's the opposite of the wise life of Ecclesiastes. Now, let, let, me, let me make an application right now, because it's, it's Christmas. And let me take you to, to a passage in Matthew chapter 2. And this is the story of the birth of Jesus. If you remember, Herod was on the throne in Judea. And he was king, and he heard there was another king born. And he was disturbed. So he calls the magi and calls the, the, I'm sorry, the rabbis who have the scriptures. And he goes, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. They see the word written. There is a book that's a revelation from heaven that speaks of God interrupting earth. And yes, there's lots of good things to learn out there. And I love to read as much as anybody. And there's lots of truth in all the fields out there, from anthropology to medicine to sociology to law. And they're interesting and they're wonderful. But there is a, a revelation from heaven that God has given in the book called Scripture to speak to the human race about who he is, and about what life's about and where it's going. And the fear of the Lord is to hear that. Now these folks here, whether it was Herod, who basically, he, he had no fear of the Lord. He, he was holding on to his own power. The chief priests... And the teachers of the law, they knew the Bible. They knew where it said God would come to earth, about two, three miles from Jerusalem, but they could not be bothered to go check it out. Yeah, I, they would have said, I fear the Lord, but they were indifferent and were not about to change their routine. And uh, the business community, the politicians, the innkeepers, all of them missed Christmas. All of them missed Christ. How many of us miss Christmas every Christmas? We're swamped, we're busy, we can't see straight. We're just glad it's over. Because we got caught up in the same spirit. What I'm saying is that's the opposite of the fear of the Lord and taking God seriously. And uh, because the fear of the Lord is to hear this book of Revelation, Scripture, and to take it seriously. Now listen, a lot of great events, right, in history. World War I, World War II. I did a study on the internet. You know, depending on what country you come from, what are some events in history that have changed human history as we know it? And you'll see things like the World Wars, the atomic bomb, the birth of the internet. One person wrote down... A woman crossing the Atlantic in a rowboat, which I can't even imagine how someone did such a thing. But what God's saying is, is there's, a, there's a story, there's one event that changed history like no other. And that event is the event that we celebrate at Christmas. That God of the universe came to earth in human form and lived among us. And we beheld, the Bible says, his glory. We saw God, we experienced God. And, and uh, from the perspective of heaven, something happened. There was a journey that God and Jesus made a journey from heaven to earth. Now think of heaven as a place of perfection and purity and holiness. The earth was a mess. God moved into earth. He moved into a specific country. He moved into a specific town. He moved into a specific family. And he made this long journey from heaven to earth to save us from our sins. But make no mistake about it, friends. It was a journey into earth where things went terribly wrong. Sin rebellion, independence. If I was God, and if I was a good business person, I'd say, God, cut your losses and end this one. Earth went bad. 
They went the wrong direction. It's not worth the investment. But God made the long journey, and make no mistake about it, it was a long journey to leave heaven, to lay aside his glory and come to earth and live among us as one of us. Because he so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But not only was it a journey from heaven to earth, it was a journey from eternity into time. Now think with me, what's eternity? 10,000 years? 100,000 years? 100 billion years? Eternity is, 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 is no time. Eternity is, 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 is timeless. It doesn't count time. It's measureless. God, in Jesus, made a journey where he entered time. He entered like this thing called a calendar. Days and, and weeks and months and birthdays and work days and sleeping where, where God subject himself to the constraints of time. Because God was outside of time. He was eternal. And just how it must have felt like for Jesus to be caged in by human history. And even secular historians will say when Jesus came to earth, it was the best time in history because of this thing called the Pax Romana and the languages. And this thing could spread very quickly. But when, in, in the days when Jesus entered time, the kings used to set the calendar. Like, okay, this is the 14th year of King Claudius. And, the and then when he died, the next king, oh, this is the 12th year of, of Caligula, the Emperor Caligula, or the 8th year of the Emperor uh, Augustus, but they set the calendar based on whoever was king. Once Jesus came, our calendars were forever changed. Do you realize that all the you know, human race knows its calendars based on Jesus? And he reset it. And uh, he changed it forever. And so everything is now measured by that monumental decision of when God chose to visit earth. And uh, not only that, he journeyed from spirit to body. I don't know if you've thought about this, but previously, before the incarnation, before God came to earth, Jesus was not in a body. He was spirit, not flesh. Before the first Christmas, you couldn't touch Jesus. You couldn't see Jesus. He was invisible, just like God the Father and God the Son. And he made a decision. He, he was invisible. doesn't mean he wasn't real. He was, of course, real and alive, just like radio waves and TV waves going through this room right now. They're, it's alive. My, my voice going with this microphone, it's just as real, even though it's invisible. But... Christ was a spirit without a body, but he made a choice to become human. He took on human form, Philippians 2. And he didn't do it on his birthday, when he, the first Christmas, when he came through Mary and was birthed. When he was conceived in the womb of Mary, that is when God entered human history. I want you to think about this for a second. The eternal God was contained in a microscopic human embryo in the womb of a teenager in Nazareth. When we say God made a journey from heaven to earth, that God made a journey from eternity into time, when God made a journey in Christ from being spirit to took on human flesh, do you realize the eternal God, all wise, all powerful, all knowing, all holy, do you understand what he did when we, we talk about pondering Christmas, pondering what we're doing here in the next few days? What it means to fear the Lord and take God seriously? That God was contained in a microscopic human embryo? It's impossible! Yes, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. God entered the darkness of a womb, came and moved into our world to become one of us. Why? To save us to communicate to us, to make himself known to us, to save us from our sins and to set us free 
to be his bride, to know him forever. That's how much he loved us. The eternal God, Son of God, came from spirit to body. It's unbelievable if you think about it. And he would be human, in a sense, even with, in a glorified body. He would be in this glorified body forever, Jesus, the Son of God. So it's the same body as he was conceived in Mary's womb. The same body grew as he was a teenager. The same body grew as he ministered and did his miracles at 30, 33 years old. When he, res when he was crucified, that was the same body. When he rose from the dead, it was the same glorified body. Acts 1, when he ascended to heaven, it was the same glorified ascension of his body. When they saw Jesus, Jesus said, when I come back with the clouds, I'm coming in my glory, but in the same body. In fact, he will, come, he will, he will wear that, you, that body, glorified human body, forever. And we'll recognize him as we see his face. But do you understand the magnitude of what he did when Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth? He was still 100% God. Even at this moment, as an embryo in the womb, he's 100% God, but he's also 100% human. Only God can do that. Only God. The, John 1:14, and the Word, or God Almighty, became flesh and dwelt among us. Friends, it's unbelievable. And as Jesus said in John 14, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He who's experienced me has experienced the Father. It's news that's just too good to even contain. It almost like explodes our, our, our finiteness, our, our ability even to grasp it. It's like, this is impossible because it's a revelation. It's something God interrupted and revealed to the human race. Even though millions missed him, he made it known. And to take God seriously, to live in the fear of the Lord, is to pause and ponder this. Some of you struggle with humility. Oh. He who was rich became poor so that you might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. But Jesus, the Son of God, like he had all the organs we have. You know, arms and legs and hearts and lungs and brains. And he felt what we felt and disappointments and the lights. It's a miracle that he did not cease to be God. 100% God. 100% human, both at the same time, one of, a one of a kind. Why? To be our savior from our sins, to live for us, to die for us, so that we could know him. All right. But the second portion of this text, verse 13, a wise life, it says, this is the end of the matter, verse 13, fear God, that's the first one, take God seriously, and the second is keep his commandments. I'll summarize it very simply. It means to do what God says. A wise person just simply does what God says, obeys God. Now, it's, a, it's an awe of God. I just don't make decisions without God. I mean, think of, you, if you, think of your past year. How have you made most of your decisions? Did you just kind of make them? Or did you really consult God and say, God, what would you have me do with my time, my energy, my direction, my relationships? Or is it just, I'm just doing what I can, God? And that's very interesting. But a holy fear of the Lord does what God says. Now, Herod could care less in the first Christmas, nor the, nor the uh, innkeepers, nor the religious leaders. Again, they should never have missed the birth of Jesus. Say, how could anybody miss Jesus? How could anybody this Christmas miss Jesus? Easy, isn't it? We have a hard time hanging on to Jesus. But let me ask you a question. Let's apply this, doing what God says. Let's take the next four days. Are you captured by Christmas? I mean, have you, have you has your heart has your heart like been moved to reflect on what it means that God 
the eternal God would have come to earth in a human person, in a baby, crying, to, to, to reach out and have a relationship with us to save us? Are you captured by giving yourself to the poor and doing something out of your comfort zone this Christmas, just as he did for us, to leave your world, to enter somebody else's? Or are you so caught up in being busy and stressed out that you just can't wait till this season is over? And uh, are you decorating your house to get your picture in the new Newsday? Or are you stopping and saying, you know what, instead of decorating my house going crazy, I'm going to make the choice that we're going to spend some time with God as friends and as family and reflect on Advent and Christmas before God so we don't get sucked into the beast, into the world around us. Let me ask you this. What's your relationship with Scripture? It's very interesting in the Bible because the, the, in Matthew 2, the, people who, the religious people went to church. They knew the Bible. They just didn't do it. They couldn't be bothered to immerse themselves in it and let it touch their hearts to meditate on it day and night. I mean, what does it mean to meditate on the beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. To let those words sink deep into you. Or do you kind of like, oh yeah, you consult scripture every now and then. You know when it's convenient, you pick up the daily bread and read a few things, you know, a few lines. But really, it's not something you say, my life is shaped by God. Or how you came here this morning. Did you come here saying, hey, you know what? I'm coming to see what happens. Or did you come saying, Living God, what are you saying to me? What do you have for me today that you want me to change in my life? How did you approach even showing up in this room today? Was it in the fear of the Lord, of taking God seriously? Even if you are bored stiff right now, it is possible God is speaking through a human being, through worship. He speaks through a donkey in the book of Numbers. God speaks through all kinds of means if we will hear him. And now I question, do you come in here saying, I'm, all, I'm just open, or your heart just so full of all this other stuff, you can't hear anything from God, and you're basically running your life and saying, God, if you want to talk to me, talk to me. And you blame him. I don't know if you're struggling with sin issues and temptations today that are serious, but the fear of the Lord and doing what God says is, I fear the Lord enough to say, I want to, I'm ready to cross this line. I know it's, it's going to mess me up. I know it's a sin, but you know what? It's the fear of the Lord. Even though I want to do it so badly, I'm going to step back and trust him. As the Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, Proverbs 3, and lean not on your own understanding. Don't you try to figure out how to run your life. Bank your life on the promises of God. Seek first his kingdom, and God says, everything else will be added on to you. But most of us, we don't function like that. We trust in our own wisdom. We do what makes sense. If it doesn't make sense, even though God says it, we say, well, I'll seek first the kingdom after I got this thing set up. I'll obey you, God, when this, this, and this is in place. I'll step out in faith and use my gifts after so-and-so and so-and-so gets their life together. And we kind of hedge our bets. But to take God, do what God says means I am going to obey God regardless. I'm going to not function, as I said a couple weeks ago, as a functional atheist. We say we believe in God, but we live as if we're atheists. But to do what God says and fear the Lord and take him seriously means, you know what? I'm going to live my life Marked by the fact that I believe in a living God whose word is true, who's active and alive. And so whether it's my money, my resources, my time, my energy, my vacations, my relationships, and I'm bitter and angry at this person, I don't know what to do with it, but oh God, help me, Lord. Because I take you seriously and I want to do what you say. So I'm not going to live shut off and angry and bitter and cut off from this person. I say, oh God, help me. Every Christmas we have relational problems, don't we? Especially with family, stuff emerges. And it's empty. You say, you know what? tough. They deserve it. Well, you know, that's not really the fear of the Lord. That's not taking God seriously and doing what he says. It means I know God talks about things like reconciliation, forgiveness, humility, brokenness. Even though I don't want to do those things, I say, oh God, help me. 
What's wisdom and prudence in this situation as I move forward? But I don't just end it and say, that's just the way it is. That is not taking God seriously. That is not doing what he says. So let me ask you this Christmas, this year, what are you doing? What does it mean for you to take God seriously? Now, Christmas is all about food and trees, and I like trees, and Christmas lights and giving some presents, which is wonderful. But let's not forget, this is really about God's side of the story. He made a journey from heaven to earth, an incredible journey. He made a journey from eternity. He entered our time. God in Jesus took on human flesh and became one of us to save us from our sins. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a lot of saved God. There's a lot to save me from. And the Bible lays out the kind of people he came for, people like Moses, who was a murderer. And God came to save him for his sins. People like Jacob, who was a pathological liar. And some of you here, you're pathological liars. Jesus came to earth to save you from your sins. Some of you, like Jeremiah, you're depressive and you're suicidal. God came in Jesus to save you from your sins. Some of you, your marriages and your families are a wreck, and you've contributed to it. Like Hosea, whose wife was a prostitute. God came to save you from my sins, your sins, my friend. Some of you are like David. You're out of control. You, you committed adultery. You murdered somebody. God came to save him from his sins as well. Mary Magdalene, seven demons. God came to save her from her sins. Thomas, full of doubts. Always a question. A cynic. God came to save him from his sins. And the same thing with Peter. Like some of us here, we always have our mouth open. We're always saying stupid things. We're jumping out of boats and sinking. You know, we're, we're up one day, down the next day. But God came to save you from your sins too. He came to save us. Do you hear this? He came to save us. But the sad thing is millions, millions missed the first Christmas because their hearts were hard, they were shut down, and they were angry about something. Who knows what? It's too good to be. Do you realize the Christmas story is too good to be true? It's too good that God would have come for us to reach out and have relationship with you. Do you realize the intensity of God's love for you? To have done this for you, to have a relationship with you, to, to actually die for you and rise from the dead, his blood being shed, that your sins could be forgiven, that you'd come to God freely and be in relation with him. And then, you, then, we, then we get mad at him, we throw him out the window. He still persists and he's here in our midst. Take it in, just take it in. Let the glory of Christmas just grab your heart for a minute. Let it touch you. Be saved from your sins. Accept him and let the glory of Christmas change you. Whether you're seeking here today, you're not sure you're a Christian, or you've been a Christian 20 years, let it grip you, melt your heart as a baby. And I, I really, I, I pray that you'll say with me for just a moment, oh, Jesus Christ is my Savior and Lord. Hallelujah. It is a miracle that I'm in this room today. Now, as one wise professor said to me many years ago, he says, if you don't do something with what you hear, in the next two to three days, you will have forgotten it completely. So what are you going to do with this information for the next two, three days? Because if you don't do one thing with it, it'll be lost. You'll come here next Sunday and say, what was that sermon on last week? Get a tape, thank you. <laughs> what does it mean for you to take God seriously? And I want to ask you the question, in what area of your life are you not taking God seriously? And what does it mean for you to do what God says today, tomorrow, 
What does that look like? I want you to think about it right now for a moment. God has gone to such lengths to get to you, to get through to you. Look at what he has done to have a relationship with you. What do you want to do with it right now? And what I want to do is I want to invite the worship team to come on forward. Because sometimes, I don't know how you feel, but sometimes I feel like I'm, in front of Andrew and I are in the car on Wednesday. We were going to, this, to the closing for the building. And there was one item that we were, that there was still, that we were fighting with with the Elks, or they were fighting with with us. And we wonder, we said, Jesus, where are you? What are you doing? Speak to us. And we didn't hear anything at that moment. And as I reflected on that, you know, becoming a Christian is like falling in love. Some of us, we fall in love. We fall head over heels with people in a minute. Others of us, it kind of takes time, and slowly over time, we kind of, oh, I'm in love. You know, and it takes, it takes quite a while before you know it, you're there. And that's how we become Christians. Some of us very slowly over time. Others of us very dramatically. It doesn't matter how you get there. But becoming a Christian is like falling in love. But then what happens is, over time, you get disillusioned with God. But like the romantic stage is gone, and we're like, God, why, why are you doing this? Well, where are you? What are you saying? Say something! And we get disillusioned, and we, and, we, and we quit on them. And as you know, in earthly marriage, if you don't get through that disillusionment stage, from the initial romance stage, you never stay together in a, as a married couple. You eventually divorce or get separated or quit on each other. But mature love requires going through a disillusionment stage or a difficult stage when it seems like everything's going so wrong. And the same thing in our relationship with Jesus Christ. You seem like, God, you sucked me into this thing. I love you. And now it's like, what, this relationship is not going the way I wanted. But a love relationship of maturity with God requires seasons that we go through. And I'd say, we went through something on Wednesday, Andrew and I, it was very interesting. We were, like, God wasn't behaving the way we liked. And the temptation was to say, you know what? I'll call you when I'm, when I'm good and ready right now, because the way you're treating me, God said, no, I love you and I'm pursuing you. But this relationship is not a, a, an immature one where you're controlling it. We're going to move into a mature relationship of intimacy and love as my bride and I'm your husband forever. And I came to earth to die for you because I love you. But don't you bag out on me because you feel betrayed. You feel like I let you down. I am faithful and I am good. And I, will never, I will never leave you or forsake you. I came to be with you. But make no mistake about it. I'm going to be with you, perhaps not in the way you think I should. But I will be with you forever for your good. So I want to invite you all to stand with me for a minute. Friends, this is the most wonderful message the world could ever hear. God came to earth in human form in the person of Jesus. 100% human, 100% God to have a personal relationship with me and with you and with people. And we lift that up today as a lampstand in Elmhurst, Queens, New York for the glory of God along with other churches around the world. Are you taking God seriously today? If you are, are you doing what he says? Close your eyes for just a moment, all right? And just as Peter plays, just quietly respond to him. And maybe you're here this morning, and you are, you know you're not a Christian. And today is your day to cross over the line. To repent, turn around, 
open up your heart to Jesus. You know he died and rose for you, but today it's to be personal. You're going to invite him into your life to transform you. And becoming a Christian is very simple, saying, yes, Lord, I receive you, Jesus, my Savior and Lord, today. Come into my life, O Lord. Make me your son, make me your daughter. Transform me today. And the Lord says, if you hear my voice, and as I knock on your door and you let me in, I will come in. To be near you, to be in you, to forgive you, cleanse you, and give you a new life, the life you are destined to live. If you've not done that, do it right now. Say, yes, Lord Jesus. This is the wisdom.